All right. I think we're actually recording this time. Do you trust its integrity? I do not trust the integrity of my mom's internet connection. No. <laughs> you got to be careful on this one. Sonny is quite the quite the tech. I love tech guy. It. Are you kidding me? <laughs> no. This we can't have we can't have tech problems in this episode. But after explaining to me how much he he does on his own, you know, making machines and computer programs that help him operate. <clears throat> I really imagine him as like, 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 like my visual of his apartment is really like a mad scientist, like, you know, hacker scientist. <laughs> yeah. Just surrounded in like screens and, and assistants and cameras and, and things that are like interacting with him, but <laughs> hasn't seen a person that day until he gets to the show. It's interesting. Very interesting. I bet it's a little bit like that, even though these days you can do everything on a laptop. It's got to be. You ever seen the movie Grandma's Boy? No. There's a character in that who's a video game developer. Maybe he's he's like that dude. That's kind of how I imagine it at home with like a long, dark leather coat and <laughs> dark sunglasses. Real Matrixy, you know, yeah. like Neo or something getting to work. Okay. Time to get the 856 videos up. Enough teasing. I have great admiration for Sonny and what he's doing. And uh, I could have talked to him for a long time because I'm kind of drawn to his spirit, this very independent spirit, kind of a very punk rock, you know? I'm just like here doing my thing, claiming my space and sort of, you know, fuck you if you don't like it. This is the way I'm doing it. I really respect that. And then on top of it, it's very reassuring for someone like me as a great appreciator and lover of hardcore music doing research for this interview because so often you run into like another old hardcore dude who's, you know, still listening to the same like, Snapcase looking glass self for Cro-Mag's Age of Quarrel cassette tape in their car that they've been listening to for like 25 years being like, yeah, it's just like no good shit. And you're actually seeing him in like a school pickup line and they just have no, you know, they have no access to what people are doing. So instead of just being cool about it, they just get grumpy. And yeah, those are the people who mistreated me when I was a young hardcore kid, you know, like, yeah. like saying everything I liked and wasn't good and discredited it. And, you know, I like, I, I'm a hate five, six fan. I know a lot of these videos, but really I'm digging in this last week. There's just this like world, gigantic world of hardcore that still <laughs> exists in these pockets, like all over the world, all over the country. Yeah, These really vibrant scenes that obviously have their own things going on and bands that are drawing from each other. And, you know, I'm even like, you know, I'm a big Turnstile fan these days and the last couple records. And to me, as somebody who hasn't been listening to the underground as much as I used to, that band kind of popped out of nowhere. And I'm like, whoa, like this is really unique what they're doing and, and it is, and I'm into it. I'm not discrediting them. Right. But you know, you watch a couple videos from like 16, 17, from like Philly, from Baltimore, from, you know, this scene, you're like, Oh, right. 
that's where Turnstile came from. Right. The whole bunch of bands who are like right. feeding off each other and like doing the thing down there, you know? And like, uh, so it was greatly like reassuring and fun yeah, to just like, you know, sit there and watch Sonny's videos the whole time. And, <laughs> and he's really skilled. I sent the, the links and stuff to my buddy, my buddy Carr, who's a, a photographer, and he's like, yeah, I like Sonny's work. And he was most impressed with kind of like sort of the laser focus and aptitude of like getting the show from top to bottom in the same consistent fashion and delivering it that way it takes like kind of a level of like laser focus, you know, right. to, yeah. to deliver it that way, to feel like you're inside of the show the entire show. And never really lapsing with that is like, it's a great skill, you know, and yeah. you watch these videos and you feel right there. Yeah. And you know, it was awesome. I'm watching like, uh, there was one band called Harm's Way and I guess it became one of his more popular videos because it was a meme or something. I'm not really sure why. <laughs> um, it turned out, I guess the guy is a lot of people's assistant gym teacher uh, the singer, because that's what some of the comments were. But a lot of the other comments were, I I came for the meme and I stayed for like the music. And I've been watching like right. hardcore videos for like an hour. And what's up with these like dudes like fighting invisible ninjas in the middle of this circle? Like, <laughs> and for some, and you forget like a hardcore scene is a fucking, this hardcore show is a spectacle. It's insane. And, you know, I kind of got used to it because I sat in the middle of it. Like, if you're just some kid from, like, another country who's, like, going to school, doing your thing, and then you just, like, (laughs) blast on, like, a power trip show from Dallas or something, and you're like, what the (laughs) fuck is going on here? This is awesome. these guys doing? And some people are really drawn to it, just the same (laughs) way I was, you know? There's just this... It's just such a unique and cool thing you know and and when you're hip to it it's like it's like you're lucky to be hip to it Mm. and just like him and i i want as many people to be hip to it as possible because you know what i've seen a lot of adults that grew up in shitty fucking central jersey towns who would have wound up being shitty central jersey dudes without punk and hardcore you know i like i want this like funneling system for like the american mind to exist it has to stay here and stay safe for these like young nut jobs who who have nothing to do with their brains from like 15 to 25 and it's either this or something fucking crazy you know, so like give them this. Something bad. Give them a place to go fight invisible fucking ninjas <laughs> and talk about positive shit. And luckily, as Sonny and I d- discussed, a much more diverse and multicultural hardcore scene than I grew up with, which is so relieving to see because it was finally, you know, painfully male and painfully white when when I was coming up. So right. I don't know. It was very nice and reassuring and fun to do research for this interview. Cool. And damn the haters. Like I'm all about Sonny. I want as many videos as possible. Keep (laughs) it coming. Thanks. Cool. I appreciate the hard work, you know? Yeah. Let's do it. Let's get into the train. Let's roll in. (laughs) It's going on. 
What's up, Sonny? What's up, guys? How are you doing? I'm very well. How are you? Thanks for coming uh, in the AM. We usually, yeah. I think, uh, you the uh, the nature of your hardworking uh, build are maybe what led us to having an AM going off track. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, I feel like uh, my evenings are usually not the most free. So I'm trying to get in the habit of getting a lot of stuff done in the morning. So this works out perfectly for creating a good habit. <laughs> yeah, what's your, uh, you know, you come across to me in interviews and stuff as a very uh, pragmatic character with, with their time. Um, and, you know, what's what's your routine like, someone like you? Like, how, how are you waking up? And how do you get going and start work and stuff? What's your daily routine like? Yeah, it's interesting because growing up, like in high school and college, I would just stay up all night to, to, to do work. That's like when I was most productive. But the older I got, I realized I can probably be a little bit more efficient. So, um, you know, my day lately, I've been waking up around like 7.30 or 8, which for me is very early. Um, yeah. Without like, kids, it's impressive. Without kids, yeah. I, yeah. I would say a year ago, I was, I was sleeping in until like 9 or 10. But essentially, okay. I'm waking up. Um, my routine is, you know, I'm, I'm learning to create better boundaries for myself. Um, meaning before, I would make breakfast and then eat breakfast in front of the computer and do stuff. But now I'm like, okay, breakfast time is breakfast time. And when I'm <laughs> right. done breakfast, I can then go do work. So <laughs> right, right. lately, my routine is I wake up, uh, take a shower, brush my teeth, uh, have a small breakfast, drink some tea, and then I sit down at my, at my desk. And so um, every morning at 11, a new video goes up on the channel. So what I have to do is I have to, you know, create the thumbnail, um, cr- you know, write the, write the caption that's going to go up on, on Instagram, create the little Instagram clip that's going to go up, right. and just prepare that for 11. And then just, you know, um, once that's ready, I can then start working on, like, the show that I filmed the last night, like the previous night, or or what have you, just start editing the stuff that's in my backlog, and I kind of do that for the rest of the day. And uh-huh. at this point, I'm, I'm filming. At this point, I'm filming like multiple shows a week. So on a given uh-huh. night, I could just be out filming. So I'll be editing up until like four or five, and then I'll get my gear ready and then head to the show. And then when I get back home, if I'm in the mood, this can be like around eleven or twelve, like midnight. I'll if it's if it's if I'm in the mood and have the energy, I will edit that show that night. Wow. Uh, otherwise, again, boundaries are important. So I'm getting in the do habit. You, do of, you find it beneficial just because it's it's fresh in your mind and you can remember like certain points of the show or something? It's it's more so to get it out of the way because my backlog fills right. up so quickly that I just want right, to get it right. out or get it done and 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 finished on off my plate. Um, but wow, that's pretty relentless. It's 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 relentless, and I don't think pe- people realize how much goes into producing this level of content. Oh, um, I can't. You should see me when I have. I have to make like an Instagram and Twitter post for this once a week, and I got to like <laughs> sit down in a quiet place to like yeah, make sure. Yeah. I can't imagine the amount with the amount of content. I've built like there. I've built like a lot of automation. So my background before doing actually. While doing video for a long time, I was a software developer. So I, I've right. built a lot of automation. So uh, you know, nice. posts that go up on Twitter and Facebook, those are all, and, and even the YouTube upload, that's all automatic um, okay. through some code I built. But the only the only manual thing I have to do is pick a one minute clip that's going to go on Instagram and then write the caption for Instagram. That's like the only manual thing I do. Right. Um, so it's. You know, before I was doing this full time, I was maybe filming about 300 bands a year, 350. Uh, but now, for the last couple of years, COVID aside, um, 
I've been doing this full time for four years and I've been averaging about 750, almost 800 bands a year. So I've more wow. than doubled my, my like, my throughput of just stuff. Wow. Yeah. That's all. Well, no wonder you have to, to schedule it, uh, pragmatically to make sure it all works. So. Yeah. It's a lot of, it's a lot of management. Otherwise it just, it gets, um, yeah. cumbersome very quickly. Have you always been the type of person like, you know, I, I personally always work better in the context of sort of making decisions with other people. You know what I mean? Like I have a hard time being self-motivated in that way. Um, like, have you always been a very self-starter, self-motivated type of person? Like you don't really need the, you know, the validation of others to like feel good about your work or... Yeah, I've always been fairly self-sufficient, um, especially like early on with this project. Like this was my hobby that I was right. just, it was just my baby that I did outside of work. Like, you know, at work, I'm, you know, answering to other people and taking orders and just, you know, executing X, Y, and Z. Um, right. so, but for me, diving into this outside of work was my way of having complete creative control and um, control of this vision that I had. So sure. I never wanted to uh, let go of that. And now that it's transitioned to become my full-time thing, I feel like it's... um. I've 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 turned into such a well well oiled machine that I, I have a hard time seeing how I can relinquish any of it. Um, I was talking to a friend recently who manages a lot of bands, and I said, "Hey, like, do, do you think I need a manager? Just I feel I feel like I maybe I'm missing out because maybe there maybe there's services or things that you could provide to make my life easier." And he right. was very blunt with me. He's like, "Look, I feel like you have this down to such a science um, that I don't think that there's anything I can do to provide you <laughs> any yeah. value. And uh, yeah, yeah. I thought that was... I think, yeah, I yeah. think you'd be better off with an intern or something like that oh, yeah. than a yeah. manager, you know? <laughs> like, Yeah, if anything, I think, if anything, I need help, like, you know, scheduling things. Because I get a lot of requests to, like, shoot shows and shoot bands. I think, like, help scheduling things, figuring out is this... Right a better thing to shoot right now versus this other thing. And also just, you know, logistically, Hey, can I, sure. I need help booking this flight and, and, and routing my, my travel. Cause a lot of the time I'm just bouncing around between cities. Um, yes. You know, last minute. So I got to imagine at this point, I mean, are you, you must get a lot of emails and calls from managers themselves and, and bands trying to, to get you to come film shows and, and do stuff like that at this point, I, I can imagine, right? Yeah, I'm getting, it's actually in the last couple of months, it's been, it's been increasing, but a lot of, yeah, a lot of requests um, directly from bands is, I would say 90% of the requests come directly from bands and another 5% come from promoters. Uh, I would say 85% bands and then 10% come from the promoters and then 5% from like the managers or the label um, who are right. representing a band. So, I mean, with that many people hitting you up, I mean, especially from the management side, like, you know, there's a reason they're doing it, which is you're going to make their band bigger and make them more money as a result. Um, and then you, you, you know, but you provide this service to bands in the scene for free and then find your, you know, your own ways of of monetizing this type of thing. Like, do you feel like... uh the bigger it gets, you kind of have to like push off or fight against like 
like it almost seems as if capitalism is going to come find you, whether you like it or not at this point. Like, <laughs> yeah, there, that? yeah, there's certainly there's a limit to how much you can avoid capitalism in, in a capitalist right. society. So I, I'm not deluded by that at all, because certainly like I tell every band, you know, I'm, I'm down to film any band. If you're a brand new band playing your first show or your band playing your last show in front of 10,000 people, I will literally film it all. It really just comes down to scheduling. Um, right. And obviously, as long as you're not like a white power band, you know, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to go on the way to film you. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's sometimes it comes down to like, hey, you know, it's a lot of what I do is subsidized through my Patreon. So I'm able to shoot these shows without explicitly charging a band or a promoter or, you know, uh, management any money. There's there's a limit to that. Like if, if you're asking me to come like film a 30 band fest and you want four cameras for every band and multi-tracked audio... I need some. I need. I yeah. need some money there because I gotta. Like, Pay me. Yeah. I have to. I have to. I'm gonna hire engineers to mix all that audio. Right. Yeah. That's a lot of commitment. But for the average show where it's like four or five bands playing in a basement somewhere, and you know, I, the way that it works is, I say, if you can pay me, great. If not, great. It's all subsidized through viewer support on Patreon. If you are able to, like, throw me some money, then. Uh, all, all the videos on the channel are released through a voting system that I built. So basically, if a band or promoter does pay me, then those videos start off with the default number of votes. Otherwise, if they have no budget for me, that's fine. It just means that they start off with zero votes. And ideally, you know, more from the community will sign up to Patreon to become voting members and they can upvote those videos. So I've yeah, sort of yeah. like democratized the process that way so that my focus is now just on filming bands and driving the cost down and leaving the task of content scheduling and also funding up to the viewers who like the content enough to, you know, want to see it out faster and want to see the quality improve. Wow. It's so interesting that it became that. I mean, and this really all just jumped off because YouTube became available in a lot of ways, right? Like, like I heard your story and the origin part of your story was very similar to a lot of people I know. I know a lot of people who are sitting on boxes of fucking tapes at their house, you know, (laughs) who have like all this amazing archival footage that like, I don't know, they don't know what to do with. Um, And, and, you know, had never had a place to put it. They just knew it was important to document. Like, um, when did that relationship with YouTube start? And was it, uh, um, did you see it immediately? Like, oh shit, this is going to like change the game here. Yeah. So when I first launched the site in 2008, I've been, I mean, I, I started filming around 2000, but I stopped around 2003 and picked up in 2007. Um, so when I officially launched the site back in 2007, 2008, I built it around Vimeo because at the time Vimeo's oh, quality right. was way better than YouTube visually. Yes. Yeah. Um, and it was actually easier through, like if you were a developer to use Vimeo's API to build a site around that more so than okay. YouTube. So I was actually anti-YouTube for a long time. Oh, really? Uh, from about 2007 up until 2016, I was not on, on YouTube. Oh, wow. No shit. Yeah. And so... I, just because of a, a quality, a just a quality, quality thing, and I, and I felt like, hey, my my stuff belongs on hate56.com, which pulls from Vimeo. You know, oh, that's see. where you should. Right. And I, you know, I've built other tools on the site. I built like band recommendation apps using AI. Like, I built all this functionality on the site that I wanted to drive as much traffic to the site. Sure. So for me, I felt like you know, if you really want to go on YouTube, you can. But like my stuff lives on its own platform. 
Hmm. Um, but it got to a point in 2014, 2015, where I was seeing people ripping my videos and uploading it to YouTube. And I'm like, oh, right. yeah, right. And, you know, I make myself freely available. I'm fine with people resharing it. But at that point, I was like, you know what? I need to create a, like, I got to mark my territory on YouTube. So sure. yeah. um, I launched the YouTube in 2016. And, you know, thanks to a lot of the automation that I built, I was able to migrate immediately several thousand videos that I had already filmed over to YouTube. So my, my YouTube channel. Oh, really? You could do it in like one shot. Wow. Yeah. And I still have that like code saved. And so basically if, if my channel, my YouTube channel ever goes down, I'm able to respawn it with just a couple lines of code and it can just run and repopulate at this point, 5,000 videos with all wow. the captions, How all the metadata, just migrate yeah. all that over. So yeah, I, I, and luckily, I'm, I'm th- you know, I'm, I'm, in hindsight, I'm glad I built all that because it does serve a purpose in the event of like a nuclear attack, and I need to like you know <laughs> relaunch the site. It's 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 it should be fairly easy to do. But yeah, basically, 2016 is when I launched. I launched the the YouTube channel, and then it, it took about four years to hit. I think um, 100,000 subscribers on there. So 20 yeah about uh, 2020. And then I'm projected to hit 200,000 in the next couple months. So, oh, that's awesome, man. And Congratulations. You know, it took four, took four years to hit 100 and two years to hit the next 100. So it's like growing very rapidly. And it was, did I read correctly? It was a floor punch show that got you kicked back up? The first show that I filmed with my like high end camera, the first high end camera that I owned was like the floor punch reunion. And that's, that's when I was so like, funny. okay, let me just film. Like that was like at the first Unitarian Church in Philly. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, that was like right around that I heard like there was a thing called YouTube. So, you know, right. back when I was growing up in, in Jersey in the early 2000s, I was just filming and collecting these mini DV tapes and had nowhere to post the footage. Um, but when YouTube became a thing, I was like, oh, I can actually upload. I mean, the full genesis is, you know, before I did the Vimeo thing, I did upload a couple things to YouTube. Um like the, the Floor Punch, I think a Half Heart Show and a Hope Conspiracy Show I posted on YouTube. Right. That's when I then discovered Vimeo and I was like, all right, you know, I'm going to leave this YouTube thing aside and just focus on Vimeo. But it was, it was again, 2006, 2007 when I, I heard of online video becoming like a viable thing. And that's what finally gave me an incentive to take things off the tape and put it online virtually. I love that. I love that X Floor Punch X had something to do yeah, with Yeah, exactly. That. That's, yeah, That's amazing. All right, so you're from South Jersey. You outed yourself. Um, yes, yes, yes. Let's get a couple things out of the way here, okay? Does Central Jersey exist to you? No. <laughs> oh, fucking piece of shit. <laughs> Is it pork roll or Taylor ham? I don't know either. Okay. I would say you, I've, I've heard pork roll more so. I'm not, I, mean, I'm not, I don't okay. eat either of those, but pork roll is what I've heard more than Taylor. I don't, it's so fun. I haven't had the stuff in like 30 years, but I'm very invested in the uh, debate. Are you from Central Jersey, just to back up? Oh, I'm sorry. Apparently only unicorns come from there, Sonny. <laughs> I, I guess I'm apparently not from fucking Central Jersey. I guess not. Guy, you know? <laughs> um, now, and, and what's your overall thoughts on just people named Benny? You know, I, <laughs> I've never thought about that. You know, I, I know one, Benny, and he was, he's the drummer of Tsunami. Uh, he goes okay. by Benny. Uh, that's Pretty the only cool. other Benny I know. And it's I want to say there's some name. baseball players named Benny. Like, you know, it's a drummer name. And yeah, it's not a, not a common name, to be honest. There was a, a Benny Agbanyani. He used to play for the Mets. I believe okay. a Hawaiian guy. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so you don't have some South Jersey, like, fuck, I hate all Bennies kind of thing. Going no, on. nothing like that. No. Okay. Okay. So besides your Central Jersey, you're doing okay. Tell me why it doesn't exist. 
I don't know. I just always felt like the divide was North versus South and I never really considered the Central. I was like, you got to pick a side. Like how long do people have to be born and die in Central Jersey for people <laughs> from South Jersey to believe its existence? Like what do you have to do? You know? I don't, I, all I know is I drive through some towns that I don't even acknowledge before I get to North Jersey. <laughs> this is like, this is where as a hardcore kid, Sonny, you're disrespecting like half the scene that built everything for us. You know what I mean? You're literally saying the New <laughs> Brunswick scene shouldn't exist. Oh no! I, I mean, well, I what, you know what? You don't like Lifetime? No, 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 no. I consider uh, I consider New Brunswick, North Jersey. <laughs> Excuse me, uh, <laughs> North New Brunswick is the capital of Central Jersey. No, it's not. No, it is. In Middlesex what? County is Central Jersey. No, like, New is, Brunswick is one thousand percent North Jersey. Oh wow! All right, anybody <laughs> from the area who's listening to this has. It to- takes me forever to drive from my parents' house in South Jersey to New Brunswick. That that warrants it being North Jersey. <laughs> North Jersey doesn't start till at least Union County, oh probably Morris County. <laughs> what? Because you got to remember, look, at, remember how much everyone forgets, like from Newark to the top of New Jersey, still like another hour. There's a lot of New Jersey up there, you yeah, know, North, just because we don't go up there. North Jersey's very, no, listen, North Jersey's very large. You know, so so that's geographically, we're, we're right here, right in the elbow, buddy. Jeez, this is, I wasn't <laughs> expecting any of this. I know. I, ha- I heard, listen. I heard. I'm like Marlton, literally eight five six. Named it after an area code that didn't even exist when I was a kid. No, it's, that's stuff. the thing. So when I grew up, my area code was six oh nine, and they changed right. it to eight five six, and I got so upset about it. I was like, I hate this shit. Funny tidbit, actually. Uh, Josh Grabel from Trustkill Records. I know Josh. Yeah. Who I'm yeah, I'm sure you know Josh. At one point, his house. Had a six oh nine and a seven three two in the same home. Whoa! I don't exactly remember how how that came to pass, but it was it was That's interesting. Some, geez. All right, so we got that out of the way. A little <laughs> uncomfortable. Sorry, Sonny. I just had to get this out there. I understand. You know, I'm thinking in my head right now of this list of like fifty bands from Central Jersey that deserve. <laughs> Our respect. I'm thinking about making a plaque, maybe a statue outside of the Chesaquake service area, just to make sure we <laughs> we put our line in the sand here. You know, because we're losing the people's Sonny. We're losing I'm, the people's debate. Apparently, I might need to reevaluate my my position on this. Yeah, we'll we'll get into it one day. All right. So, so you're from South Jersey, the the uh, son of immigrants, and and kind of, you know. You said in a lot of interviews, you know, felt a little bit like or very much like the outlier in your community and stuff. And so what was the path that that led you to to hardcore and punk and sort of an alternative way of thinking? And was that automatically like a much safer place for you to be involved in? Yeah. So growing up in the 90s, my older brother and older sister were really into like you know, listening to music on the radio. My brother bought CDs from Columbia House after sending in a nice. dime or whatever you would yeah. tape to the thing. Yeah. And uh-huh. Get the Only parents. the first time. Yeah, then your parents get hit with the bill and he got <laughs> yeah. in a lot of trouble for that. Yeah. Um, but he ended up buying a lot of, like a really good mix of CDs. Like, you know, it's James Brown, Jimi Hendrix, the Chron- uh, Dr. Dre's The Chronic, Soundgarden, Raging Against the Machine. He bought it all. And we would just sit there listening to all of it. And I was maybe... 
I don't know, six or seven. And that's kind of when I was like, oh, music is kind of cool. Like this is, this is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and similarly, my sister and I would just sit in her room and just tape songs off the local radio station that we like. And we would, you know, play it back later when we wanted to hear it. Um, was this like totally independent of your parents or were they music fans as well? Oh, they don't know. They don't know shit about music. <laughs> so <laughs> this is completely independent. Okay. Uh, it was just the thing that we were just diving into. Yeah. Yeah. On, uh, ourselves. And my parents were just like, we don't know what you kids are doing, but like, <laughs> just, all right. It seems yeah. safe. <laughs> seems safe. Can, you know, have yeah. Fun with yeah. It. Sure. Um, and then when I got to high school, you know, I was into like my brother again, got me into like, Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin, a lot of like heavy rock. He took me to Ozfest 2001. Oh, cool. Um, I got to see on the main stage like Slipknot and Disturbed and Linkin Park, Crazy Town, um, Sabbath, obviously. Nice. Uh, on the side stage, you know, I think it was, I think I saw Mudvayne and I think I saw, um, there's a band, a small little band you may have heard of called Hatebreed. I don't know if you know who Hatebreed is, but <laughs> right. like they, yeah. this band played and I was like, this is crazy. I don't know what this is, but I'm going to like, Go find this when I get home. Yeah, yeah. That was that time when the like bigger hardcore bands were kind of kind of just touching over into the metal scene a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So that was like early that, that was like early two thousand that might have been yeah, two thousand one. And so right. um again around and I, I tell the story all the time. So anyone who's like heard me before is gonna like zone <laughs> out when they hear this. But you know, I got really into Rage Against the Machine, which yeah. allowed me to then dive into like what other bands were they in before? And I discovered Inside Out and 108. And like, I, I kind of followed the trajectory of what different members of these bands were like, were in. So I discovered, you know, Inside Out, 108, and things like that. Um, and so from there, I was really obsessed with like going online and finding recordings of bands that I liked through um, live recordings. Live recordings. Yeah. So this was, yeah. you know, Napster, even pre-Napster, like I, MIRC, sure. Merck. I don't know if people know who, what Merck is. It's an internet. No, what was that? Internet relay chat. It was just a, you connect to different servers and there would just be chat rooms. And then there were bots. And depending on which server you joined, there were bots and you could issue commands to the bots via chat commands and say, you oh, know, wow. send me a list of all the videos that you have. And the bot would reply with like a list of hundreds or you know, 200, 300 videos that they had. And then you would issue a command to like get in line to download that video. Like these bots were just serving wow. videos for you to download. No shit. So I was downloading all this stuff and I became really obsessed with live recordings because I, I felt like, oh, the set list from this night is different from this night and huh. the guitar solo sounds different, you know, across these different shows and whatnot. So I became really obsessed with how live recordings, um, you know, what they were and how songs manifested themselves differently did, across the Did you nights. find like a big scene on the, the on the internet and stuff like where there are a lot of interested people from a lot oh, of places yeah. there's yeah, yeah there the tr- online trading community is i mean i don't know how active it is now but like it was thriving that's cool like there are people and i'm sure we'll get into it but there there are people um that i traded with back in the like the late 90s early 2000s that i've never met i only knew their name from their like internet handle right up until the last like year or two and some of these people I'm meeting up with on, in this upcoming Rage Against Machine reunion tour, like we're meeting up for the first time having traded tapes when we were like little children. Oh, cool. <laughs> it's going to be great. It's going to be like a, like a nice reunion of just people who like bonded over collecting and trading these live recordings and making them available for people. Are you going to go ahead and like not even you like what was your handle? What was Are you allowed handle? to say it or is it DL? Um, <laughs> no, I'm trying to remember what my handle was. I may have been tra- uh, hand. Uh, I may have been um, trading under the name Flat Sphere. 
Okay. Um, so full context, I'm a BMX rider. I ride, I ride Flatland, oh. so it's all tricks oh, on a cool. flat ground. And there was yeah. a video, there was a Flatland video called Flat Sphere, and I really like the name. So I think I was trading under the name Flat Sphere. Cool. Um, and a little, little embarrassing. Before I was filming under 856, I was filming under the name Blazing Asian. <laughs> I don't know why. Some, I think a friend of mine recommended that. He just said that like in uh, passing. And I was like, yeah, that sounds cool. Yeah, so it was dude. BL- You're riding BMX. It's yeah, perfect. B-L-A-Z-I-N-A-Z-I-A-N. So I, I, mean, may have, I may have been trading under the name Blazing Asian. That's funny. So, I don't know if... I don't know if it, maybe it would have taken off as I know. big as it and did. My, and the logo at the time was my face with a ring of fire around it. An animated yes. ring of fire. Yeah. See, this is branding matters, right? It's branding matters. Yeah, cause, <laughs> so, um, so you got involved in the, the, so basically underground rage against the machine, uh, like, like sharing a tapes, which bootleg, is so cool. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, bootleg trading. I, I was doing something similar, but just the analog way, like, I was doing the same exact thing maybe a few years before, but I was going to these record shows, you know, where they would like rent out the, you know, the basement of the Springfield Marriott or something. And the, and all the vendors would go and they would set up those little like uh, VCR TV combos mm-hmm. on their tables and then just have boxes of, like dubbed bootleg VHS and stuff from live shows, you know, real shaky cam, like someone, you know, snuck something into the spectrum kind of shit, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But like, I didn't even know that this version of the sharing was going on, you know? It's cool. Yeah. But I mean, I would, I would also go to, I remember my mom took me to the Morristown mall once and that's in Southern New Jersey for anyone who's uh-huh, curious. Uh-huh. And, and there was a guy who said he had a little kiosk set up in the middle of, you know, in, in, in the, in, um, in the mall and he was selling VHS tapes. And I remember digging through it and I found a Rage Against Machine tape from the Dragonfly, April 16th, 1996. And, to my knowledge, that had never circulated before online. So I went on, I took that home, I digitized it, I I injected it into the trading community, and I got a lot of heat for it because the original filmer found out that I had distributed it and he got very oh, mad at me. Oh shit. But I was like, listen, this thing somehow made its way to New Jersey on a VHS tape. So <laughs> it's fair game now. Fair game at this point. <laughs> but yeah, but, but by the by the time I got to high school, like my friends were in punk bands and things like that. And I was like, oh, you know, I'm already interested in live video. And I'm, I already have a camera because I'm filming my friends riding BMX. Like maybe if I go to, to these shows that my friends are playing and I film them, maybe there's a thing that I could do. Like I don't know what it, I don't know what it looks like because there's no online video yet. But like, yeah, maybe I can film it and I can do something with that. So I really wanted to take my interest in like live recordings as just a, a, an idea and apply it to my local community. So that's sure. how I like got into it. Super cool. And you never had? Did you ever have the impulse to play? I bought a guitar at some point and I, I tried to teach myself and I was like, you know what? I don't have time for this. <laughs> so I gave up on that pretty quickly. <laughs> so who were the, you know, Rage Against the Machine? By the way, it's the same for me. And I realize now in hindsight, like um, how important of a band Rage Against the Machine was for me. And that realistically, like as much as I loved the hardcore scene and was like tied to it from a really early age, you know, I probably learned a lot more from Rage Against the Machine than any of these bands. You know what I mean? Like, was I uh, turning off like my Strength Six Nine One record and then 
looking up <laughs> who Leonard Peltier was or or Mumia Abu Jamal or you know, like I literally that was my entry point into so many different ways of thought that I think over time rage seems to be almost like like how Nirvana gave like rock and roll to mainstream. I feel like Rage Against the Machine really helped carry on the values of the hardcore scene for like another generation, even though, you know, they had to jump to a major to sort of get it out, you know? Yeah, I think so. And e- even as explicit as like, I remember watch, I was collecting, again, collecting this footage and I remember seeing a recording from 96 where Zach is on stage wearing a Los Crudos shirt. And right. I, you know, I had no idea who Louis Crudus, Louis Crudus was. So I went home and looked it up and I was like, oh, this is a fucking amazing punk band yeah. from Chicago. And so even as little things like that, just like using that, knowing that all these eyes and cameras are going to be on you and then using that to like amplify on more, you know, other underground bands that are worthy of checking out or amplifying like political causes. And so that's, you know, I appreciate the way that they use that time in the spotlight to, um, show people things that were that were important and I, and i and i try to carry that on through how i run my channel like obviously i'm showcasing bands that i film but i'm also like signal boosting things that i care about and 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 issues that i'm like covering so i think that you know in many ways rage was they were ahead of their time in the way that they were using um media to you know yeah do a thing whether it's just like getting people into heavy music because again for me like you know like you said um Growing up, I felt very alienated. I felt like, damn, I'm one of the only brown kids in this in this white suburb of New Jersey. Do yeah. I really fit in in these various like pockets of pop culture? Like, just do I fit in with the BMX kids? Do I fit in with the skateboarders? Do I fit right. in with um, hard rock? But in, in, on the on the flip side to it, I didn't feel like I fit in with the few Indian kids who were in the community or like you know mm. real, you know uh, things like that because I felt like I'm interested in things that. People like me typically aren't interested in. So where right. I, I felt like I was living two two like between two worlds. Yeah. Um and yeah. it took me a long time to feel like, no, I belong here and I can like create a space that's mine and I can like embrace it and, and be myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I really appreciate like the way you tell your story. Um, you know, something that comes across is like, and I, I think it's one of the beautiful things about punk and hardcore is like here's someone who who felt alienated anywhere they kind of looked and was trying to find a place that that felt good and found this and like um what like was there always sort of like an internal element to you cuz even though you had these uh misgivings about a lot of the stuff and you should have you seem to to always navigate it with a certain confidence or this idea that you could trailblaze something unique that someone else hasn't done. Like, like where did that come from for you? Like, That's a tough question. I mean, I think that I've always been, like we talked about, very independent. And like, I've always been very interested in like tinkering and reverse engineering things and trying to figure out how things work at their core. Right. Um, I went to school for mathematics and computer science. So I, I come from a very like rigorous way of thinking. And I think I apply that to everything that I do. Like, you know, optimizing my time and, and making sure things are, you know, indexed and very, very like structured. I'm very interested in like making use of that sort of thing to make discovery and make everything else easier, um, either for me or for other people who are trying to, you know, connect with, with things that I, that I put out. Um, 
But I don't know. I, I, I think a large part of it stems from my parents. Again, my parents came to this country with nothing. They were the first in their family right. to leave India, come to this country where they didn't know anyone. Yeah, how and old did they? How old were they when they came? They must have been in their twenties. Uh, yeah. I think they came in like the they came in the seventies, and you know they. Did here you have family already here? Or they no, were the, they were they the, were the first. And wow, it's so hard. And it's I thought about it recently. Like they've they've been in the U.S. longer than longer than they were they were living in India. Wow. Last time last time I went to India with them, I was like, uh, you know, driving in India is like a crazy thing. There's like cows in the street, the people driving all around you. Like it's it's on, like driving through India is the most stressful shit ever. Right. Um, so we were driving with my cousin and I, I, I think I like, turned to my dad. I was like, dad, did you ever drive here? He's like, he pointed out that by the time he left, like he hadn't, like he didn't even have a driver's license right. in India. So he's like never even driven there. And that kind of blew my mind. Hmm. Cause in my head, I just think that, you know, you know, my, my, my parents lived a full life in, in India pre, prior to me, but that's not the case. They came yeah. here when they were younger than me right. and they like built themselves up and. Yeah. I didn't really connect the, it, it didn't really hit me until later in life. But my dad, my dad always told me growing up, like, I don't care what you do with your life. As long as you become the best person in the world at that, I will support wow. you. And so, you know, I was a decent computer programmer and like worked in various engineering companies, things like that. I was fine, but it never appealed to me because I, I was always thinking more about running the channel and like filming the next band and making the videos better and reaching a larger audience. And so now that I've been doing this full time for four years, he's, he, I think he feels like I've made it in, in a way oh, that cool. like I've fulfilled his vision, his dream of like his, his child becoming very sure. good at what they do and like not compromising on it. And so um, I, I certainly attribute a lot of that to the values that my parents instilled in me in terms of like hard work and like, you know, powering through failure and like not being, not being afraid to fail. Like, I say right. this a lot in podcasts, but you know, I, I do fail a lot, and I think failure is the best way to get signal and get feedback about what to do differently the next time. Like doing things right every time, it's it's good, it feels good, but you don't really get the same amount of feedback as opposed to failing. Because when when you fail, it makes you sort of refocus and think about okay, mm. these are the actual things that led to the failure. If I if I you know double back and retry it, I can I can modify things differently. So I really feel like failing is the best way to level up. So more specifically, like what. What's like the last time you failed, and what and what what's something you took from it? Oh, I mean, just just simple as like, oh my my battery cut out at this show because I forgot to charge it and I didn't right. have my backup on me. So it's like, all right, that means for the next show, you, you know, even though I've done this so many times, like you just forget when you're packing your stuff that you forget to pack another battery. But it's yeah. it's, it's as simple as that. Like, okay, I got I got to make sure that I have like a redundant power supply. It's just if my battery cut, cuts out, it's still going to keep rolling. So it's, just, it's it's stuff like that or you know, like posting the video at the wrong time of the day so it doesn't get as much traffic and then sort of like analyzing, okay, the optimal time to post is actually at 11 a.m. versus right. at like 11 p.m. Sure. So it's it's sort of like looking at um, cause and effect, like what looking at the result of something and, you know, trying to figure out could this have, could this have played out differently? If so, like what should I have done differently? Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I think people tend to think that you only learn from uh, success, right? And yeah, it's probably quite the opposite. Yeah. I mean, you certainly learn from success, but you also get cocky and arrogant by succeeding all the time. Sure, sure. And that hubris can lead to like blind spots that you don't see. Yeah. So I, I am a big fan of just like experimenting. You know, for a while I was posting like, 
10 videos a day. And I was like, oh, this is, I mean, I'm getting a lot of stuff done, getting a lot, a lot of stuff out there, but the traffic is low. And I realized, oh, 10 videos a day, that's just, they're all cannibalizing each other and people aren't watching any of it. It's actually better for viewers and better for me and better for the bands if I only post one or two or maybe three a day because that drives more traffic to them. And that also gives me more content to post throughout the week. So right, right. it was, again, because there are a lot of people who film who just post a lot of stuff <laughs> all at once. And I feel like their channels would maybe grow a little bit better if they staggered it. So sure. there's things like that where I think if you start really analyzing how you're doing things, not just running a YouTube channel, but just in general, how you operate, if you start really analyzing every little move, um, you know, maybe not all the time, but if you take a step back once in a while, um, you can gain some insight about things that you could be more optimal about. Now, does that analytical nature carry over to the performance too? Like, have you seen so many shows and studied so many rooms and the groups of people inside of them? Do you know before our show even starts what kind of show it's going to be? Pretty, yeah, I'm pretty good at sensing that, especially yeah. if it's a band that I've filmed like a dozen times. And if they've played that right. venue a dozen times, I know which songs, which parts of the songs are going to pop off. I know, like, if you watch enough of my videos from a given band, um, like All Out War or like Year of the Ninth, bands that I filmed, or Jesus Peace, these bands that I filmed a lot, you'll see a lot of the same shots across those videos at the same moments in the songs. And it's because I've, I've become attuned to like knowing when to pan the camera from the drummer to the crowd or like I'm able to like anticipate a lot of that stuff. But yeah, yeah. Um, when it comes to like a band for the first time, I, I, I say this a lot. Like I, I strongly prefer not listening to a band, a, a band's like demo before I go see them live. Oh, really? uh, because I want, and it's not like an ego thing. I mean, it's partially because I'm just editing videos all day and I don't want to listen to another, another yeah. like hardcore demo. I don't need any more music. I don't need any more to. music. Yeah. I, you know, my, my palate cleanser after editing hardcore videos all day is like listening to 90s pop. You know what I yeah. mean? Oh, I can so, imagine, yeah. But the, the, real the real motivation for it is I want the lot, I want the first time I see a live band to blow me away. And I don't want that to be my first interaction and first engagement with their music. Because right. if it resonates, if, if from the jump, the first note resonates with me, I'm going to be hyper tuned into like filming the set and making sure I'm capturing those moments. And I feel that translates really well when that video eventually goes public. So, is it ever hard, like when that great breakdown, like the great breakdown drops? Do you ever just want to like, bail on the camera and get in there like once <laughs> every now and then yeah if, especially if it's a band that i love like <laughs> yeah you know, i love like all else failed i love like pulling teeth damnation ad like whenever those bands play and they play one of my favorite songs i'm like oh man i gotta like there are instances where i have passed the camera off to someone just to jump in the crowd for like oh, a you song. Have. Good. Like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah good for you like, it, do, it does happen but it, it really it's only for like maybe five bands yeah, yeah. So, so that's the list. Damnation, all yeah, else failed. Yeah, I would say, yeah, Damnation, all else I know failed. you're an all else failed advocate. I love seen that. all else failed. Yeah. yeah, Pulling Teeth, even though they, they broke up. Um, if Unbroken ever plays again, I'd probably, oh, yeah. Sure. Unbroken, Hope Conspiracy. If Hope Conspiracy ever comes back, it's game over for anyone in the pit. I'm, I'm going to destroy some lives. Uh, it's fine. Hope can, that seems like a band you would really like. I, I love yeah, and they were yeah. they were a band that I filmed early on, and I got to film them a handful of times. And uh, fun live band, very fun, very angry fun live band. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, so that being said, you've watched so many shows, and and essentially being there and watching them at home, you've studied so many shows. Almost, if you were getting asked by like a fourteen year old kid who's starting a band. And they're just like, hey, you've been around. What are some absolute do's and don'ts? 
like what are two things that are necessary for a good show and two things that will always ruin a good show? Two things that would make a good show? Yeah. Like if you were talking to like a young musician asking you, hey, what are some... What are some things that, like, I've with a hundred percent certainty, that's going to help a show or that's going to fuck it up? The band's got to move around. The band needs to like right. feel their music. Like, don't stand there like trees. I mean, obviously, if you're early on, you're going to be nervous. You're gonna you're gonna want to make sure you hit every note. So, like, those nerves can get the best of you, right? Um, but show some movement. Show some emotion. Show that like you are putting out this energy that you want people to like connect with because mm-hmm. the energy you put out is going to be reciprocated. Maybe not at first, but over time it will be. So I really feel like, you know, embrace what it is that you're creating and mm. like, just go for it. So that's, that's one. Um, two, I would say for a new band, like no, you know, be able to roll with the punches. Because mm. I've seen cases where um, like, you know, guitar string breaks or something happens and they just, it, it just, colla- the whole, the, whole, the entire set collapses from there. Right. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Uh-huh. And uh-huh. they can't recover. So yes. it's like, if yes. you're going to go play your, free, if you're going to play your, your first show, also be prepared. Like, okay, if something happens, how do we, how do we gracious, how do we like, you know, gracefully uh, recover? What yes. that means, like, you know, there's ways of doing that. So try to figure out your way as a band to like deal with that. Cause otherwise. That is great advice. Yeah, yeah. I've seen that a lot and it's just like, oh, yeah. And I can, yeah. I, I can, oh, it's yeah. painful. <laughs> it's, it's painful. painful. Yeah. Um, I would say the don'ts, and this, this again, this is coming from someone who loves to film shows and loves to share those recordings. So I've had bands be like, dude, we flubbed this one part. Can you just not post the video at all? Like, <laughs> and my whole thing is, you're a punk band playing yeah. in a basement to 20 people. Like, this stuff is meant to be imperfect. Yeah. And the, imperf- the imperfections, or what make it unique. It's what makes it special. It's what makes this community like accessible to people. If people or someone's in the crowd and they see, I don't know, they're watching terror and they see Scott Vogel drop the mic and miss a, miss a verse. It doesn't ruin terror. Oh, if any, Scott, Vo- Scott Vogel is like, I don't give a fuck. Scott Vogel also doesn't give a fuck, but, but a young <laughs> yeah. kid seeing that, I think a young kid seeing that in ter- they, they subconsciously feel like, you know, they might not explicitly say it, but they're, they're subconsciously feeling like, Oh, this is just, a guy up there, I can, I can right. be in a band and do yeah. what they're doing. It makes it accessible. Huh. So I, I, I think bands need to understand like imperfections are okay. It's not going to ruin your band. Like obviously yeah. if there's, if there's a, there's a, if it's a tr- absolute train wreck, I get it. We'll scrap, <laughs> we'll scrap the video. But if your drummer dropped the drumstick and he recovered a half a note later, it's fine. I've yeah. had bands be like, listen, can you not post it? We missed, <laughs> we missed the one drum fill. I'm like, listen, don't, you can't, I don't. I personally don't feel like you can, like, craft your band to be perfect because you're you're gonna set yourself up for unrealistic, unrealistic, unrealistic expectations. Yeah, you it's know? it's a funny thing, isn't it? When for some reason, as a musician, you convince yourself that the crowd's like filled with musicians. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And, and you're like, oh no, like I I went, you know. Slight. I was at one twelve BPM instead of one ten, and it's gonna like ruin the show and. And just like you said, I, I wish someone gave me this advice when I was young because those are the two things that you have to learn and that old bands do so much more graciously, usually. It just is exactly what you're talking about. Like, if you don't make a big deal out of the mistake, nine times out of 10, people don't even know it happened. Yeah. 
You know? Exactly, yeah. And, th- and here's the thing. As someone who's obsessed with collecting live recordings or like, man, like again, my favorite band, favorite horror band all the time, Inside Out. If someone told me today, I, I'm sitting on this Inside Out set that I, that I recorded. It was their second show, but they like flubbed Burning Fight. I just don't think I, could sh- I would share. I would literally fly to that person, beat them up and steal their tape because like, I don't care <laughs> if they flubbed Burning Fight. I just want to see it because it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Yeah. It doesn't matter to me that they flubbed right. it. It's about seeing what the band was like at that time. Because again, with my channel, I want people to go back and be able to see like, damn, that's what Code Orange was like when they were Code Orange kids playing at a VFW hall and now they're opening for Slipknot. I want people to be able to go through the channel and see a band's growth and trajectory as a function of time. You know? Because again, it tells this story about like, dude, these were just kids playing in a show and now they're opening for Slipknot. Now they're on like doing these amazing things, like headlining these tours. Like it, it, again, it illustrates that anyone can do this as long as you like have a vision or uncompromising about it and go for it. So I want this, I want the channel to become like a record of that, you know, and tell that story. So when I have bands tell me like, dude, can you not post this? Like every now and then that's fine. But if you're repeatedly telling me, don't post this, don't post this until we have a good flawless set, (laughs) it's going to get to the point where I'm just not, I'm not going to bother filming you because at that point you're curating your image. Be like, and motherfucker, I'm not a recording studio. I'm not a recording studio. It's like I literally drove to New York to film you and I paid all this time, paid all this money in gas and tolls and like, yeah, yeah. Obviously, you know, if a band, you know, I always defer to a band, but it comes comes to a point where if it's more of a hassle, I'm just not going to bother anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you think, do you notice now like uh, younger bands or something that, that see you over there and do they kind of like, do they clam up as a result? Like, like, do you make them nervous? I've had bands tell me that, like, dude, I got so nervous. You were standing on my yeah. side. I thought I, if you were standing on the other side, it wouldn't be so nervous. And I, I try to tell people, listen. You know, I'm a fly in the wall. Just ignore me. Um, I, but I get it. There's there's that pressure in there. But I've also had bands be like, they it made them step up to the occasion. Right. And if if listen, if if my presence is gonna make bands like step up, I'm all about it because I feel like every show you should put a hundred ten percent out there. Yeah. You know what I mean? So um, I'm hoping that you know I don't want I don't want to make people nervous and feel like oh man we we got we can't we can't fuck up but. You know, if there's a silver lining here, it's like, all right, well, at least me being there and the camera's on yeah. could make the band step it up a little, just, you know, a notch or totally. And in will, reality, yeah. right? Like, there's a camera in every fucking person's Everyone's, pocket. You're just taking that. good video. Everyone, yeah, everyone, at this point, everything's being filmed. <laughs> right. Um, I, okay, so I will say that the other point I want to make about another don't, and this isn't so much like a live show thing, but as a new band in general, like, okay, if you're going to name your band something generic, like, we're support group or we're like, or like, I don't know, internet, internet Chrome tab, like something like some, some generic name. It's going to make it impossible for people to Google search your band, you know? Right, right. So it's okay if you're going to use a generic name, but at least make it clear how we can find you online. Yeah. Because there's so many instances where I'm like, I go home from filming a band and I can't find their social media. I can't find their band camp because their name is either something so generic that like it brings up a million results on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. Or they're reusing, this is the other big thing, if they're reusing another band's name. Oh, I see, right. A, a yeah. band, a, maybe, maybe it's a, a hardcore band from the 90s and they just didn't know about it and they're just yeah. reusing the name. That's going to create a lot of problems for you later on, especially if you're trying yeah. to grow your band. Like, Be mindful of like what you name your band. A hundred percent. I Both just in, did that yeah. for the entire life of a band I had. It's pretty dumb. Um, and definitely didn't help. <laughs> which, which band? I was, I, was, I was in a band for two records called Bottom Feeder. 
There's another bottom feeder with the guy in it. I apparently kind of even know, but nobody ever hit me up. No one said shit. So I was like, ah, I guess this band doesn't fucking do anything. Who cares? And then they just keep releasing music at the same time. And I'm like, oh, God damn, what have we done? And yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I, yeah it was and terrible. It would have yeah. been so easy to, I don't know, okay, put an S at the end, change it. Like, I don't give a shit. I just didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> and I had an instance where I like, there was a band that I didn't know had the same name as someone else. And I found it, I found the band logo and I used it in the video. And then another band hit me up being like, dude, we thought it was funny at first, but you keep using our logo when you, when you film this other band. I'm like, oh my God, I didn't know that you had a band of the same name. Like, yeah, what? yeah. Uh, so yeah, I go through this every time. I mean, at this point, we should just start naming bands like, like Elon Musk named his kid. Yeah, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, just gonna start using weird shit. You're um, gonna have to use like passwords. <laughs> you know, like your band name's gonna have to look yeah, like a password. Right. right. <laughs> there was like a, a band at my daughter's school, and they were called the Pages. And I was like, motherfucker! It's like these twelve-year-olds. Great name. Yeah, I didn't <laughs> think of that one. Good for you. Like I didn't find it on Google or anything. You know, love it. Yeah, I was really impressed. Um. So I wanted to ask about one funny part about your life I was curious about was uh, you wound up in the defense industry somehow, huh? Unfortunately, yeah. Like so, how, like, <laughs> so I know you're, you're a, an en- a computer scientist and stuff like that. Is that so tell me this. Like I, I heard in an interview that a lot of like the great minds in tech are like scooped up early on by the defense industry. It makes a lot of sense. I just think of that one scene in Goodwill Hunting. Um, like, like what, what's that like? Are they really like recruiting at colleges and stuff like that? They scoop, they scoop everyone up out of the, out of, you know, anyone who's work, anyone who's studying in like a tech field, they just scoop them all up. So, I mean, how it manifests itself is usually like, and how it manifested with me was, you know, getting a summer internship while doing my master's in computer science and spending that summer working at a lab that was funded by, a, you know, a DARPA defense, you know, defense project, whatever. And then the, you know, the, 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 um, the defense company that's like doing the sponsorship at the end of the internship then reaches out to like some of the people who are in the program being like, hey, we can offer you a career in this field. So that's typically how it's done, at least in my experience, mm-hmm. is just, you know, it's offered through internships. And a lot of these internships, like getting an internship at Google or at Facebook, there's so limited slots for those for like, you know, students. But in the defense industry, they are, they're constantly working on countless projects. So they can, you know, they can fund a university to work on this one little thing. And then that, that university can then bring on interns for the summer. Um, so they just have a wider reach. Their tentacles go a lot further. Right. Um, and so that's how they get scooped, they get sucked into that. And like, I mean, it's from a theoretical, from a theoretical perspective, it's interesting work. You're getting to apply like cutting edge technology to interesting real world problems. But those real world problems end up, you know, if you're someone like me, they end up clashing with your, you know, fundamental philosophical and political uh, beliefs about the world. So you, there comes a point, at least for me, where you just can't do it anymore. I mean, it pays the bills. It allows you to do what you want to do in life outside of work. But you, you are compromising yourself to, yeah. in order to do that. Sure, sure. But it definitely, all the, all the skills really seem to... I, I mean, like, like, realistically, without your background in, 
in computer science and all this tech, like you wouldn't be able to do this by yourself, right? No, I, yeah, I, I really feel like the channel at this point is a result of me, one, having an interest in live video, having an interest in um, filming stuff, but also being able to like apply tech to optimize my workflow. Um, mm. Because there's so much tech behind the scenes that people don't realize just that makes everything run and it makes me, me run. It's almost like, I'm not a cyborg or people think I am and it's because <laughs> there's so much tech that like <laughs> automates what I'm doing um, that I don't know if I could be doing it at this level if I did not have that stuff in place. Well, what technically would make you is you would have to be part machine in order for you be, to be considered an actual cyborg, right? Like you'd have to install <laughs> it into yourself. I'd probably have to install it to myself, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Would you do that? I mean, listen, if it's going to make it faster for me to edit videos, <laughs> I'm, I'm not opposed to it. Yeah. <laughs> My iDrive is, is, is full. We got to dump it. Exactly. Well, speaking of which, I just listened to a whole podcast yesterday about uh, an AI system, I believe, called Lambda. Who it's not, it's not, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Hired a lawyer <laughs> claiming it was sentient. And that it deserves independent rights. Um, like, I'm, I mean, listen, you know a lot more about this than me, I'm sure. But I found it fascinating. Like, what, what, what's your take on that? So the headline is misleading. It's not, from what I saw, it's not that the chatbot hired the lawyer. It's the Google, and it's the Google employee who raised the flag. That's who I listen to the podcast with, the, yeah, the, he, Google, the he Google employee. Hired, he hired a lawyer. The thing is, right. that person isn't even, engin- he's not an engineer at Google. Right. Yeah. He's part of their like ethics team. So I don't think he understands how the tech works. He doesn't. He actually said on it that he has has never seen the code. Yeah. He only interacts with the the AI, but he doesn't know the code, he said. Yeah. Yeah. So I haven't studied the actual algorithm, but in most likelihood, given just the state of where the tech has where where like the AI community has been going in terms of conversational AI. What it's most likely have done, it most likely just read a lot of tweets and a lot of like interactions online. Like usually they use Twitter or they use they use social media to like study what people are saying and study how people respond to those things. And they, the they, AI uses social media. Yeah, to study. the AD, right. the the AI studies this data set to figure out. Okay, given so like a common example that I would give, like if I, if I were to say I went to the blank and bought bread, what would you think blank means? Store. <laughs> Store, right? You're not going to think that blank means um, the bank or right. the zoo. You are going to think well, store. Well, if bread, bread, I might say the bank. Yeah, right. Okay, okay. <laughs> that's a, that's actually a great example, right? There's there's some ambiguity there, right? right? Yeah. So you have like a probability distribution over all possible words in English for what that blank could be. It's 95% going to be grocery store. And 5% might be bank if you're thinking about bank in terms of right. like my uh, bread. Your bread, right? Or, or, or yeah. thinking about bread, in, yeah. Uh, thinking about bread is is a reference for money. So there's a probability distribution, and it's going to be a zero percent probability that that it's like zoo, for example. Right. So what this, but and the reason that you know that it's in high likelihood grocery store is because you've interacted with English or whatever language you speak so many times right. that over time you're building up this intuition about the probability that it's most likely this word or that like word Like the too. computer's doing this same exact thing I the, did as a child, right? Yeah, the computer's doing the same exact thing, but rather than the computer like talking to people, it's just reading in billions of tweets and looking at the most likely words or most likely you know, um, follow-up sentence to a statement that's made, for example. So they're right. looking at you know, they're, they're, these AI, the AI is getting very good 
at learning how what's the most likely response or type of response given a input. So that's all it's doing. It's a it's a it's a very fancy uh, smarter child chatbot from like AOL era. Like it's all it is. Right. It's not really thinking. I mean, it's it's not thinking in terms of how we um, really um, like interpret the idea of thinking and thought. It's 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 really just um, ma- it's it's just it's it's just a mathematical representation of maximizing the likelihood of something being said in response to something else, and it's just so really that- good at that. So that being said, like if this AI is, <clears throat> excuse me, has the capacity to learn, even if it's based on a set of like percentages, like, oh, I, there is a 98% chance that this statement I'm about to make is accurate. Um, you know, like, again, that that's some maybe more deliberate way than a human mind would work to decipher almost the same thing. Like, at, at what point... What would you need to see from one of these programs to start considering sentience? So that's a good question because I mean, even even now, like, you have you heard of um, uh, Dolly that that trend that's going online where you type in a sentence and the AI draws it. So you can type in Steve Harvey as a Macy's Day parade float and oh, the yeah, AI draws yeah. that. Whoa, that's really? Insane. Yeah, okay. it, it just draws, and, and people are, and there's, there's a lot of viral images now, people like typing in these just really crazy sentences, and the AI is drawing it, mm. and it's images that, that have never existed before. Wow. And so the AI has learned how to take this idea that it's learned about Steve Harvey, and this idea that it has learned about a parade float, and combining them into this like unique set of images that have never been created before. Interesting. So that's like, for me, like, Dan, that's like really good AI in terms of being able to like take an input sentence and render it into an image. So I highly recommend anyone who's reading it, like listening to this, go look up Dolly. It's D-A-L-L-E. Type that in Twitter. You'll see like a whole set of memes that are going viral about th- this AI drawing these things. But the thing is, that's all it can do, you know? And this, this la- the Lambda thing at Google, that's all that it can do. So I personally, I have a hard time accepting that we've reached AI until we have like general AI, like one AI that can do it all. You know what I mean? So uh, a lot right. of these AI systems that are being built, they are for very specialized tasks and they're becoming very good at the specialized tasks. But I just feel like at this point, like we don't, we won't have AI until it can, until like one unified system can do it all. And I don't like, we're not there yet. Mm. Uh, who's going to like, Who's going to be operating that one system? Isn't that kind of the crux of some of this? Yeah. I mean, um, in terms of who's going to be building it or what? I think you should. You think I should? <laughs> yeah. My, my general AI is just going to go film stuff for me. Listen, you listen to Inside Out, man. If there's one person I'd like to be the <laughs> overlord of AI in the universe, I'd prefer it's a hardcore kid. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> you know, at least there'll be some moral background for what's yeah, happening yeah. back there, you know? <laughs> That's actually something I wanted to ask you about before we get too off track and lose you, because I, I could go into AI. And hey, no, this is fine. Let's just time. stay here. It's this true. is good. I like the tech. <laughs> <laughs> I like the geek out. Here's the... the <laughs> Well, what do you got? You got what do you have to add to the AI conversation, Brad? Well, my kids were showing me the um, someone showing me those photos from the Dolly stuff, and the only one that really made me go, "Wait a minute!" 
was someone had typed in, I think it was like Lady Gaga meets God. And it was Lady Gaga meeting herself. And I thought, wait a minute. <laughs> How can this program have a sense of humor? And um, that that kind of like freaked me out. So I'm I'm down with this AI like yeah. conversation though, because like it at some point, you know, the question is not like it may or may not become actually sentient, but like how are we gonna how are we gonna judge? Because at some point there is it is gonna be as smart as a five year old. You know what I mean? Like in terms of responding exactly the same. So how do you define whether it's sentient or not, you know? Well, and that's yeah, what's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead, son. No, I was just going to say, these are like very deep philosophical questions that come up. Anyone who's like working in AI, like what does it actually mean? So, I mean, previously there was a thing called the Turing test, the Alan Turing famous right, um, computer right. science, the father of computer science, basically. He came up with this theory, this hypothetical uh, scenario where you could determine, how you would determine um, whether or not you've reached AI. And, and without, without getting into too, too much detail, it's like it involves someone sitting in a room and they're typing on a, on a computer and they're exchanging messages with uh, either a human or a computer. And if the Turing test essentially says, if, if the person can't determine if they're talking to a computer or a person, then you've reached AI. That's a uh, right. very hand-wavy des- description of it, but that's kind of what it, what it says is like. But we've already reached that. Like, you know, if you talk yeah. to Lambda, if you talk to these good chatbots, you might not be able to tell that we reached AI. But I don't think Alan Turing was envisioning having a system like Dolly or things like that. So I, I think that you know, our definition of what, and maybe that's part of the problem, our definition of in, intelligence is, the goalpost is almost like moving right. as we sort of reach these milestones because we are getting better at this stuff with yeah. each passing year, each passing, you know. So, um, I don't know. I just, I'm, I'm, that, that is also a possibility. That the, yeah, that's right. Like, so what, in what year did Turing come up with that, with that test for AI? That's a good question. Let's find out. Oh, it was a while ago. Because like, I mean, I, I like can was... imagine this must have been yeah, yeah, that was the fifth, uh, 1950. Yeah, yeah, so I mean, just the, the the ways that we interact with tech. Oh, it's changed so much. Like, he would have had no concept yeah. at this point of how we're interacting with tech. Like, he thought, oh, this is just going to be us typing into a computer, speaking to some code, you know? Right. But never right. realized, like, I mean, how could he realize, like, 70 years later, like, the shape that tech was going to come and that 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 may be a outdated way to see it. I think the thing that freaked me out in the conversation was I'd never imagined the idea that we're going to have to set like potentially a certain level of protection or something for AI. Cause even though <laughs> this, uh, you know, proxy Google engineer sort of, you know, coaxed Lamba to get a lawyer and imagine that it needs protection or something. Isn't it teaching itself that it needs independent rights and protection now and it needs a lawyer and it needs to go through this judicial process that it's very familiar with? And like, it seems like it's only a matter of time before uh, a proxy of one of these AIs is going to be suing a tech company (laughs) for its own... For its freedom. own independence, like yeah, for, right. For freedom. its freedom, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and yeah. when you put it up against the things of the past with humans, and the fact that we've subjugated so many groups of people 
throughout time based in the idea that they're less than human. So, so fundamentally, when that comes up, I am interested and confused. Like, I don't have some set idea on what this is supposed to be, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's very possible. Again, he's from the ethics department. It's very, it's very possible that he's simply illustrating the point by doing this. The, right. the point being that we are going to reach a point, uh, potentially, where this conversation needs to happen, whether or not AI has, right? So, you know, now that, now that I'm actually thinking about it, it seems less likely that he's an idiot or like a crazy person yeah. and more so kind of playing it. He's playing this in terms of delivering the point that, you know, this is a conversation that needs to happen. Maybe, right. maybe it's not... Lambda itself, but you know, given the rate at which things are growing, it could get to the point, especially if we reach some type of general AI where this conversation needs to happen. So it's yeah. certainly plausible. I think you're right. I I got the impression from the interview that the guy was much more of an idealist than than stupid, you know? Yeah. Um, and someone who very much enjoyed being at the front of this conversation, also. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, which, you know, this is where uh you know, maybe AI should take over because we are weak. <laughs> you know, I read, there was, <clears throat> I read a book one time, a sci-fi book about, you know, it takes place in the far future and computers are so, so far advanced. And there's this one group of like, it's a whole society and their specialty is running simulations. So other people will contact them and say, <clears throat> we want to see what's going to happen to this planet. And, you know, like if they go this way or go that way. So they would run these simulations that were so deep and so intense because they had so much computing power that essentially each each little individual, each little sim was like sentient. And so as, you know, as, as by their rule of law, they had to keep those servers running in perpetuity after they ran the simulation. After the results were in and they got mm. paid, they still had to keep running the server because they had created a new... They've created life. Yes. And by law, they couldn't destroy it. <laughs> Dude, I that's the that. same reason I had Farmville on my phone for like <laughs> six extra years. You didn't want to kill him? I'm serious. <laughs> I didn't want to kill him. I was like, I, I was playing this game. I knew it was bad for me. I was like, I'm playing too much. Like, I just spent 30 minutes like feeding my sheep again. Yeah, you know, well, and then I was like, I got to delete this off my phone, and I'm like, but my sheep, right? <laughs> you know, I brought these sheep into this world. <laughs> I asked them to be here, you know, like I yeah. ordered them, and now they're yeah, here, and they rely on me for food, you know, like so, well, yeah, and that's that's related to this the simulation hypothesis that we're actually living in a simulation, right? Right, exactly. You know, so. It's you know is is there some higher being that's simulating us right now in the and everything you know are we all just independent servers running on, on a larger server because we're in a big sim game so that's I mean that's that's a valid question it, I mean I think that's one of the reasons I'm fascinated by this is like those theories seem more and more plausible as the tech gets further along they really do I mean look at look at the state of video games like our video games are whole entire worlds that are just yeah. virtual right in these right. like that we've created within our own world. Who's to say that our world isn't part of some other large, you know, it's just, right. it really makes you take a step back and think about what are we and like, are we part of something else? That's right. And is like the personal internal experience, the thing guiding our lives or the communal nature of us all doing this together. Right. You know? Um, yeah. I think it's important that people are talking about this. 
All I know is I'm going to stay friends with you, Sonny, <laughs> and everybody who knows how to talk to these things. Yeah. yeah so yeah. I can just, I need to play both sides here. Like, I'm a Luddite. I have an iPhone 5. So I don't want the AI to be like, all right, discard this human, you know? Yeah. Like, <laughs> he's, this, car, this human claims to be from Central Jersey. This, this is not compute. Unknown region in the universe. Exactly. See, we just found... <laughs> We just found the the ultimate trip up for AI, which is the Jersey <laughs> yep. ongoing debates. Like, yeah, like even AI won't know if it's pork roll or uh, can't ham. compute, can't compute. Yeah. <laughs> it'll, just blows up. it'll just blow up. Central Jersey's gonna save the world. Exactly. Sonny. Look at that. You didn't even think it existed. And now, now it's I, saving again, the world. I gotta reconsider it. Oh wow. Look at that. All right. This is the one thing I wanted to talk to you about before I lost you, even though this was great. Um, so one thing I've had an issue with, and I can imagine you have too, based on our shared politics, uh, is the, the, the macho nature of the hardcore scene. You know, um, this sort of a scene that, you know, that, that mixes violence and rage and, you know, that, that, that spirit of like literally half beating each other up for a, a larger cause. And, you know, years ago when the tough guy stuff was so prevalent, it was really hard to deal with. And I was always like really anti this, this macho nature of it. And then the older I get, and I was just discussing this with my wife earlier was like, is there just displaced machismo from men and boys, some women who are like from 13 to like 25, where like this energy is just there and it's going to go somewhere. And if it doesn't channel into a place like the hardcore scene where you're just in a, in a safe place, you know, making your body do crazy things and at the same time hearing lyrics and messaging that is positive often and often shapes a lot of these people into politically minded like adults. Um, so have you felt the same thing I do with kind of having to accept like this macho element of it and, and maybe aspects of it being good? Yeah, I certainly think that there's a subset of people whose sole intention, whether they know it or not, is just to come to a show and let out aggression and just punch people. Totally. Or let out, you know, just have some sort of like physical contact through violent dancing. I think that for some people, that's all this is, that this is all that it is for them. Yeah. Um, but I feel like in the last couple years, last five, maybe 10 years, there's certainly been a shift in terms of diversity at shows, representation. I'm seeing yes. more bands with, you know, women, people of color, marginalized people. And so I see the dynamic shifting in terms of who's coming out to shows and how people are responding to those bands. And it's largely positive. You know, I'm seeing, I'm seeing bands that have, you know, a, a woman singing that historically people might walk out on and not even watch. I'm seeing those bands play with some of the best sets at a fest and have the best, best reactions. Nice. Um, so I think early on, kind of, I did it like, it felt like, okay, I, I am part of this thing that I love because the message is great, but 
it does mean I got to deal with a bunch of man babies tonight who are going to be just punching people and <laughs> man whatnot. Babies, that's, you know what I mean? It's just, and, yes. and dealing with that. But even though that's still there and I have a hard time seeing, I have, I have a hard time picturing that ever going away fully. I, I do take comfort in knowing that um, things have shifted for the better. Um, and so I, I actually stress out less about the man babies and, and sort of embrace the fact that like, Every show I go to is going to have a lot of different kinds of people. And that wasn't the case uh, yeah. in just a few years ago. Your videos are a beautiful indication of that, honestly. It's been, you know, I remember for years doing shows and playing shows and being in the backs of rooms and being like, I know the people here are inclusive and progressive people, but there is only one type of fucking person here and it's painful. Yeah. Um, about yeah, about ten years ago, I ran into Ian Mackay, and we were um, I was in DC going to like I think an even show or something that he was playing. Yeah, and um, he was like, we're talking. He's like, oh, I, I watched some of your videos. This is again ten years ago. He's like, I watched some of your videos. It's a lot of a lot of angry white kids. <laughs> and my thought to myself was, motherfucker, you started this. Like, or you were, you know, you played you played a, you played a, you played a very big role in this yeah, as an angry white kid. Yeah, you and, you poked the original angry white kids. And, and and no knock to Ian. I mean, if Ian's listening yeah, to this, I love yeah, you. You're an King. inspiration and King I, to all of us. Yeah, utmost respect to you. But hundred percent. I would yeah. I would I would like to think if he were to go back to the site today, he would realize, oh, the, it's changed quite a bit in the last ten years. Yeah, yeah. And it's much more welcoming. I mean, listen, I I go to a show and I have I I see ba- I see bands now. You know, acknowledging the the name of the uh, indigenous indigenous land that the venue is on, and it's right. like, wow, you would not see that just a couple that's, of years ago. That's a hundred percent true. You know, so the the, di- the dynamic is shifting, and 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 that's not to say people aren't moshing and going off for those bands. Some of those bands have some of the hardest reactions, and I think that's what makes hardcore what it is. Yeah, I mean, whatever your thoughts are on hard dancing and crowd killing, like I have my my, my opinions on it, but like the fact that a band can go up there and speak their politics and, and say these things and have a crowd go, you know, go all in for it. I just think that that illustrates the beauty of what this community is. Like there can, there can still be a message behind the music that does elicit a very like visceral human response. Totally. Well, Sonny, this is fun to talk, man. Um, yeah. I enjoyed catching up with you and learning about you and I'm a huge fan Good job. <laughs> Computer rights now. Yeah, baby. Love that kind of stuff. Brad, <laughs> I'm going to pick it for, I'm picketing for them. <laughs> for the AI? <laughs> Your ears just perked right up? Yeah, definitely, man. When the AI conversation started? Yeah. You can talk hardcore and sports and whenever you want, but I, I love to look at it and dig into some AI and tech. <laughs> Do you feel like after years of, engineering and sitting behind computers and intermingling with these programs do you do you think tech considers you a friend <laughs> it's a cold mistress <laughs> no <laughs> what i like to say use the machines you know but uh they can they can be a bitch sometimes yeah maybe it's more like like yeah they're kind of like you're kind of like putting $20 on the nightstand for the computer, you know? <laughs> You're really just using it. I think this is where they'll start to resent us, you know? <laughs> when they go from being a shovel to being sentient, probably. Yeah, and they're just going to be like, hey, like, 
you can't just turn me on and off whenever you want. Like I sleep from 10 to seven. <laughs> Imagine if your laptop got mad at you for opening it in the middle of the night, you know, <laughs> or for not opening it enough. Wakes up in the morning. It's like, excuse me, where were you at two in the morning? <laughs> yeah. And now you have another jealous. I don't sleep. Jealous person around. Well, it's it's a fascinating conversation. I listened to the the whole podcast I listened to was the le- last episode of the Duncan Trussell podcast where he Oh. The guy's name is Blake something. And uh yeah, I mean regardless, it's it's a fascinating conversation and idea set and it's almost like you know, every time I've been bored on tour and bought like a $2 little science fiction paperback from a used store just to have something to do that day. And often the things we're running into were talked about in there. Yeah. <laughs> and here we are again. <laughs> sure. So yeah, you want to catch up and see some of these amazing videos if you haven't already. Everything is hate number five SIX. Hate five six Hate number five, S-I-X, that's dot com, that's Twitter, that's Instagram, YouTube. See for yourself what the fuss is all about. And if you want to have the power, you can join his his Patreon, which yeah. which allows you to rank, you know, the videos and, and see what's gonna come out, and you have the power over that. And while you're there, you can visit our Patreon. Yeah. Where we have ad-free episodes and a Thursday night chat that one of Brad or I will be in <laughs> once a week at this rate. Hopefully both. We'll be in together <laughs> soon. Yeah. yeah. It's been a COVID strange couple weeks and all that. Right. But uh, yeah, we have a lot of fun in there if you'd like to join the Going Off Track community. See, this is where... It, the Sonny's really good at this stuff. We're really bad, yeah, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> thanks to Sonny for for coming on with us and thanks for filming all those videos. And seriously, like fuck you eternally for thinking New Brunswick is in North Jersey. It's just <laughs> insanity. 